We are in the midst of a pandemic that challenges the vibrancy of our human species, yet other creatures remain in dire peril too. For 13,000 years, abalone were special to people and now are quite scarce in the waters of the Pacific. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. Not just biotic causes, but through our own ignorance, exploitation, and inertia, we have lost and are losing many other creatures on the planet that have become parts of our cultural heritage, our commerce, and our food sources. Such is the case with abalone. The abalone has long been a source of wonder and value with its iridescent shell, hearty meat, and spiritual significance. But the once iconic shellfish is now nearly absent, its decline rapid, and our response slow. Environmental historian Anne Velisis goes deep to pull together a fascinating story of cultural significance, anti-Asian racism, environmental destabilization, and the exploitation of abalone's delicate fishery on the Pacific coast in her book Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. Anne Velisis has spent her career probing the intersection of food and ecology, especially as it informs our current issues. Her previous work includes Discovering the Unknown Landscape, A History of America's Wetlands, and Kitchen Literacy, How We Lost Knowledge of Where Food Comes From and Why We Need to Get It Back. Both are multiple award winners, and Kitchen Literacy is acknowledged as one of the 50 books that will change your life. Anne's writing is fluid, and she makes connections across time and culture, commerce, government, and traditions, all with a sense of curiosity and respect, awe for the abalone and awe for the people who have been working to restore these animals and for those who revere the creature and what it represents to us. She remains hopeful and realistic. Let's listen to our conversation. Anne Velisis, Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. And welcome today to talk about this important book. Thank you so much, Susie. I'm really delighted to be here. This book is an assembly of a lot of information that is really quite remarkable. And we're going to talk about as much of it as we can with our listeners today. But I really wonder about you and what brought you into this project that seemingly must have taken years and years, I think somewhere you say almost 10 years, and covers so much in the way of cultural history, biological and and social history, regulations and that sort of thing. So what brought you down this path that's led to this book? Well, uh, it was a couple of things, Susie. My background is as an environmental historian, and I've written some books already, or two other books about the history of people's humans interaction with the natural world. So I tend to uh, be thinking along those lines. 
And two previous books I've written kind of got me thinking in particular about food, the animals that we use as foods, wild foods, and how they fit into that, uh, how humans interact with the natural world. So um, that was sort of one part of, of how I got into it. But truly, I was inspired by an abalone shell. I was uh, taking a beach walk down on the central coast one day, and I came across this brilliant little shell, and I picked it up, and I was just uh, overwhelmed by its beauty, and I just kind of had this sense of, oh my gosh, what about this animal? How does it make this shell? What's its story? And as I, as soon as I started learning more about this animal, of course, I had a sense that it had been a, an important food in the past and part of California culture, but I really didn't know much. But once I started looking into it, I realized that this animal had such a remarkable history. It was such an important part of California culture for more than 13,000 years. And yet it just seemed like not very many people really understood the animal or knew what had happened to it. When I started talking or trying to investigate the history, I realized that, that the history was dominated by nostalgic stories of like how the animal was fished in the past. Um, and people felt sad about its loss because there were so few, especially in central and Southern California. Uh, there's sort of nuances of the story in different parts of the state. But I realized as I learned more that there was this incredibly rich and important story to tell. And um, it's kind of funny because you think, oh, a book about one shellfish would be a short little book. <laughs> Wouldn't take one, one very long to learn about one mollusk. But um, I found that the stories of this animal were just connected to so many parts of California history. It was just a fascinating journey for me to learn so much. And I'd say for the reader as well, I have to say this off the top that I found your curiosity and your experience as you inflect it into the larger narrative, which is partly cultural and partly ecological and scientific and laden with government regulations and hearings and that sort of thing. And then we have your voice coming in with with your interest. And I I found the your writing style really easy to pull me in these different directions and then and then you would come back every now and then in, in your own voice and speaking in the first person. And I guess I was wondering about those kind of choices that you make in your writing, and maybe that's just your style. But for a book that does have technical facts, it has a lot of information across a breadth of things. So how do you approach telling the story and when to come into it and when to back away from it? That's a great question, Susie. And that's, you know, the challenge of, of writing a book that literally covers thousands of years of history, figuring out what to include and what not. I probably could have written a book uh, that was twice as long with all the stories, amazing stories that I discovered. And I think one of the things I kept coming back to, and perhaps part of you know my back and forth, is that I was trying to find the stories that I found most interesting and most compelling for example, you know, I take some little tangents about uh, the story of iridescence, this thing, this 
this quality of abalone shells. And if people, I think many people know what an abalone shell is, but in fact, younger generations of people haven't necessarily had the chance to see them. And they're just brilliant and shimmering. And um, as I mentioned, that was really one of the sources of inspiration to me in writing my book and realizing that that was something that people all through history had, you know, had sort of a similar uh, response to these animals. So I took a tangent to explain that. And um, and in studying the science, which is hugely technical, uh, I just tried to really keep the focus on what is the joy and beauty in this. And then later on, you know, in the story that we, that I tell, you know, we get to the point where abalone are a fewer and part of the story is conflict over this animal and how is it going to get used and who's going to use it? And um, what are we going to do to try to prevent it from declining? And yeah, the, the drama of those scenes takes place in meetings, which you would think, how do you write about something like that? It's crucially important to tell those stories because that's how decisions about cherished animals like abalone get made. So I, I kind of tried to, you know, expand where I felt like things were super interesting and then contract when I had to, you know, cover the ground. And I had to have also a sense of the whole. I had to constantly have a sense of the whole arc of where, where this story is going and how it starts. And so I, I often think of history as a combination. There's, there's the part of it that uh, you're like a detective going and searching out the stories, finding little details and things that are fascinating. But in the end, you also have to be like a quilt maker. You have to piece everything together and find the find the threads that will help you to create an arc that represents the history and that helps readers get through the story and follow you. So it's a challenge and I'm, I'm really glad that you found it to be readable and fun to read. You've just mentioned several things that I want to address. And one of them is you, you mentioned the iridescence. And for our listeners, um, many of you know what abalone is. And if you don't, the shells are so iconic in that they often have a very rough outer side, but their inside is just this brilliant mother of pearl, iridescent, glowing sort of surface. And then there's holes in the shell and they're in different sizes. But this iridescence I found kind of fascinating to find out how it is produced and that that these abalone shells are really some of the hardest substances uh, on the planet. So if you could distill it down, if I recall how I was picturing this, uh, these shells is almost to be like tubes of layers of, of glass and tubes of glass that are all piled together and assembled. And yeah, that's what creates this. So talk a little bit more about the shell and the animal in it. Yeah, I was absolutely fascinated by the shell. And so I knew that had to be part of the story. How does this animal make the shell? You know, in in a lot of the natural world, we have examples like with birds where you think, well, they have brilliant plumage to attract a mate or there are these very striking visual characteristics have a purpose that has, you know, to do with something like that. But 
In the case of abalone, it's so clearly not that case because this brilliant shell is basically brilliant inside of the shell is basically never seen until after the animal dies. And so I wondered what is the purpose of this or how did it happen? And going back to study, um, I got a chance to study the evolution of shells and optics and such. And I really got my answer, um, strangely enough, by talking to uh, a researcher who was studying the strength of abalone shells. And it turns out that using an electron microscope that enabled him to see the microstructure. And it turns out that the beauty of the shell is sort of a side effect of its strength. And the shells are, even though they look very glimmering and freewheeling and what, what's neat about iridescence is the light changes the color kind of at every, every time you just move it a bit, but it's made up of a microstructure that's very, very well-ordered, tiny, tiny little bricks of aragonite, which is a crystalline form of calcium carbonate. So it is like tiny, tiny little glass bricks layered one upon another and, uh, probably about 150 of them could fit on the tip of a hair. It's so tiny, but it's sort of a brick and mortar structure that's built that the animal builds from its interior, from the materials in the sea. So uh, I think that iridescence is also beautifully watery in its appearance. So I, I often thought about how the shell really is a distillation of the ocean into this hard, hard substance. So um, there's just a lot of wonder and beauty in the story of the animal and how it makes its shell. And of course, uh, because the shells were so brilliant, they were used in many ways. And, you know, people would pick them up and carry them halfway around the world, which of course becomes part of the story of what happened to abalone too. Yes. And that the shells were used by people native to California and and to the West, um, because you can find examples of abalone shells all over uh, the the West, really, and they were traded and used in ceremonial ways. And um, as you were describing it in the book, I could really picture some of these items you were describing, and it must have been amazing to be able to actually see some of these things. That was a very fascinating part of the research. And uh, I was particularly intrigued to find that a single red abalone shell, red is one of the species we have in California, uh, is really evidence for one of the very first meals uh, that we have evidence for uh, eaten by one of the early indigenous inhabitants of California about 13,000 years ago. So, you know, it just made me realize, wow, eating this animal has been happening on our coast for such a long time. And um, awareness of that deep history was always to me, a very poignant counterpoint to what, you know, what's been happening to abalone now, uh, which we'll get into, but, but to go back and just tell a little bit more about indigenous uses of abalone shell, you know, there are midden piles uh, in the channel islands that date back to 10,000 years or more that, you know, again, show evidence of people eating abalone along with other shellfish is a crucial part of subsistence. 
But then about 6,000 years ago, um, there started to be evidence for more cultural uses of abalone shell used as tools and decoration and adornment, things like spangles uh, that would be used decoratively as earrings and um, for ceremonial purposes as well. And these abalone shells were used through time. They were traded um, to the Southwest and also um, throughout California to the, to the interior tribes. But one of the things that I found particularly fascinating too is that the ceremonial uses of abalone persist to this day. One thing that I had the opportunity to do when I was working on my book was to go and um, watch some of the ceremonial dances, public, you know, public demonstration dances of traditional dances done by some of the North Coast tribes and really get to see abalone shell used in what's called dance regalia. It's the beautiful shell covered either skirts worn by women or neck pieces and shoulder pieces worn by men. And I was particularly fascinated to learn that it wasn't only the shell, the glimmering part of the shell that we've talked about, but that the way the shells clang together and make a sound that is considered singing uh, and a song of the animal spirit that comes when the regalia is danced to life. And it was really moving to get a chance to experience that because it's an incredibly loud sound. Uh, it's a very, um, it's something I didn't anticipate and didn't know. So that was just a very, I'd say, moving and fascinating part of my research, and especially that abalone still plays such an important role for Indigenous Californians. We've just established here that the um, for thousands of years, really, uh, Indigenous people have been using, eating, trading with abalone, and that it has been really since... Europeans have come to the West, to the West Coast, and, and started harvesting. Well, I say that, but actually, Asians were involved in this too. And that was an interesting part of this story as well that maybe we can talk about. But that this massive harvesting started happening. And there was also kind of an ecological imbalance that um, was also manifested. And so maybe talk a little bit about how the abalone industry or the commercial exploitation of this resource um, of the, these animals started happening and how quickly the, the fishery declined. Yeah, that's a really great question, an important question. And, and to, to lay the groundwork or to lay the foundation for telling that story, I think we have to go back and touch base a little bit on this, what you referred to as, you know, the ecological imbalance. And what happened when colonists, white people, Europeans showed up um, on the West Coast, the first, one of the first things that they were interested in doing was exploiting furs. And um, so the fur trade came to the Northwest, not overland, but by sea or uh, with Spanish mariners who were interested in exploiting sea otters and sea otter pelts. 
Um, and then it expanded to Russians and British and Americans, ultimately. And um, over time, of uh, what was once a population of tens of thousands of sea otters uh, in the North Pacific was reduced down to almost extermination in the North Pacific and certainly in California. And no one quite realized it, but it turns out that sea otters are a big predator of abalone. And so when sea otters were taken out of that environment, the top predator was removed. Uh, It had the inadvertent consequence of abalone having the opportunity to reproduce and spread out all over the place. And so Uh, Within a few decades, that's exactly what happened. Abalone, when there are predators, when there are predators like sea otters, uh, they tend to live in cracks and crevices where they are protected not only by their shell, but also by, um, you know, the habitat features. But without the sea otter, they were able to spread out into shallow areas, into deeper areas. And from descriptions that I've read, they pretty much spread out everywhere and they were all over the place. So when white people showed up, kind of the next generation showed up on the West coast, there was a perception that this was the natural environment of California. So we basically, you can think of it as if you're familiar with the term baseline, a lot of people, what what they see in nature were the first they see it, it, you can consider it your baseline for what you think the natural world is. And so when new people showed up in California, they thought the abundance of abalone was the natural state of affairs. They didn't realize that the abundance of abalone was in fact uh, the sign of a huge disruption that had occurred over the course of decades with the sea otter hunt and also with the decimation and removal of indigenous Americans that had also participated in hunting for sea otters as well and also eating abalone. In any case, that's what set the stage. So when Europeans came, they started picking up shells and trading with the shells, but it wasn't until the gold rush when there were immigrants from across the Pacific, from China, who came to America, their intent was to go to work in the gold fields and try to find their uh, treasure there, just like everyone else who wanted to uh, strike it rich in California. But they ended up finding this incredible abundance of abalone on the coast. And it turns out that in China and in the far, far side of the Pacific, there's another whole tradition of esteeming and valuing abalone that's been going on for thousands of years with the Chinese valuing shells for medicinal purposes, for their beauty and um, decorative purposes, and also for the meat. And so um, the first commercial fishery for abalone started with those first Chinese immigrants who came and started to just collect these abalone that were all over the place. So it was kind of an amazing first chapter because at that point, indigenous people had, many of them had had to move away from the coast. They were displaced and the white people and uh, that came in weren't really using the abalone or didn't recognize them as a food source themselves because they have a big foot that can, uh, even though we now appreciate it for its meat at that time, it wasn't well understood how to cook it and use it. That's sort of a funny little key to the story is how this animal was, how you could prepare it into a recipe. So anyway, that was the Chinese were the first who came and really built up uh, one of the first big trans-Pacific global economies in California 
based on the abundance of abalone. And that in itself, as, as time went on, you mentioned the Japanese, and it seems like they got involved also at some point in the fishery aspect of it. But that was something that white people just couldn't deal with, that, that there was this xenophobic reaction almost to these Asians having success with abalone. Yeah, absolutely. And this was, I think, a real eye-opening part of my research also was to was to come in contact with the tremendous racism and xenophobia of that era. You know, it's something we are talking about in current times, but to go back and read what was said and um, read the newspaper articles and understand the context, I mean, it was just shocking how much racism there was at the time. But the thing that I think is particularly interesting about uh, this story is that um, it also occurs sort of at this moment when people have become, in American history, when people have become concerned about conservation, because we've started to realize that people can drive animals to extinction, you know, like the buffalo and the passenger pigeon. And if you remember, as I described, people that were arriving, the newcomers in California were seeing abalone was super abundant. And then they were observing the Chinese fishermen removing them. And they were seeing what they perceived to be that natural abundance diminish. So you have that happening. And then you have this overlay of xenophobia and racism. And it made it very difficult to understand what was going on. And We also had the situation where we didn't really regulate um, fishing at that point in California. Um, There was just the beginning of of fishing game management at that point. And so there was um, just the start of figuring out how do we regulate fishing and hunting and that kind of stuff. Anyway, it was very difficult to figure out what was going on. And even as There was an early attempt to understand the biology of the organism of of abalone and come up with fishing and hunting regulations. More often than not, in the early times, the way these animals were regulated was really through racially motivated regulations oriented at preventing Japanese or Chinese fishermen from being in the United States or or succeeding, as you suggested. So it's a very uh, kind of dark part of our history and uh, an interesting one to consider. I'm talking with Anne Velisis on her book, Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. The book hits a good balance of cultural and environmental history and lore, science and biology, and Anne's unique voice, which brings us into our own reflections on the subject. Let's take a short break. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. Shoulder to shoulder, we fight battles, my friend. Wins and losses, we lose count in the end. Constantly crossing. A line that's so narrow and fine Between winning fulfillment and losing 
losing your soul in time In your heart of hearts you know it's true In your heart of hearts you'll still be you No matter how self-righteous or holy thou art It's hard to believe that we can get so far away From the things that we honor and never thought we'd betray And end up in places we know we don't belong But the ties that bind us there become so tight and so strong In your heart of hearts you'll know it's true In your heart of hearts you'll still be you No matter how self-righteous or holy The Farallons with Heart of Hearts. I am speaking with Anne Velisis, who reveals the connections between climate, weather, humans, and ocean habitat that conspire to decimate the abalone. It's never just one thing, as she points out to us. Her book is Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. Let's pick up on my conversation with her. And we didn't know a lot about how these creatures lived, procreated, and made a lot of assumptions about the abundance. And then we start getting the government commissions and the legislature involved in trying to forge some meaningful regulation. But at that time, it seemed like it was the commercial fishermen that really were driving a lot of the decision making. And, and there were also then this community of sports fishermen who had a different approach to harvesting animals and also to how they were approaching regulation. So maybe talk about those two constituent communities and a little bit about how difficult it was to really start well-managing. Really, I I guess we've never well-managed these fisheries and are still grappling with that. But uh, talk about those groups, the commercial fishermen and the um, sports fishermen. Yeah, one of the things that I found really fascinating when I was delving into figuring out the abalone fishery is that management of this animal, abalone, shellfish, 
has really focused for so long on the allocation of the animal, like who gets how many of these animals, as opposed to how are we going to keep this animal going? Uh, That was always the focus. How are we going to cut the pie? And it goes back quite a long time. I mean, for decades, it's always been a conflict between uh, who gets to get the abalone? Is it going to be sport fishermen or is it going to be commercial fishermen? And um, in my book, I, at the very beginning, I, I define kind of, or I just explore how this divide starts. And it's really interesting because for the sports fishermen, the recreational fishermen, the idea of fishing for abalone really is about the experience. You know, it's about going out into the ocean. It's about having this experience of being there, hunting your own food. It's kind of primal. It's it's incredibly meaningful to people. It's a hallowed experience. If you talk to people who are uh, recreational abalone divers, uh, it's an incredibly meaningful experience to these people. And I kind of put that into the part of the story of abalone is kind of an icon for these people. It's something that has a greater meaning than just, you know, eating the meat. It's, it's this whole experience that's valuable and part of connecting to the natural world. And some, in some cases there's family involved and community. It's um, it's, it's a very meaningful, rich experience. And on the other hand, um, the commercial part of it is, um, when, as we described initially, when the animals were being exported primarily to, to China and then to Japan, abalone was really a commodity used specifically, you know, fishermen gather them, the animals basically become a way to make a living, make their livelihood. And especially when these animals are being exported, you know, they were not part of our, they were not part of, of our place anymore. Um, and so that's sort of the beginning of the divide. Eventually, uh, it turns out that ex- part as part of that racism that we were talking about earlier, exports of abalone uh, got stopped in 1913, uh, which was a very good thing for, for abalone to persist longer in our country. But then a domestic commercial fishery picked up as well. And so uh, through time, that fishery was able to refine its technologies and um, find abalone in more and more places. One of the things that protected abalone, I think, for a long time is they were able to stay in cracks and crevices and in remote areas and such. But as technology got better through time with uh, scuba deer gear eventually and better boats that could go farther and get to more places. Basically, people were able to get abalone. But it was both of those groups that, um, you know, kept getting more and more abalone. And um, it, it was often a conflict as to who would get what. And in the end, uh, I tell a wonderful story in my book about the recreational divers who finally said, hey, you know, we are going to have to close this fishery if we are going to want to protect abalone into the future, which finally happened in 1997. Um, And at that point in central and Southern California, there were really very few abalone left. I mean, it was definitely too little, too late. Let's put it that way. But in Northern California, interestingly enough, sport divers, recreational fishermen had always tried to keep the commercial fishermen out and they'd succeeded. And so for that reason, in Northern California, there had been a very 
tightly managed fishery that persisted um, really until just about six or seven years ago um, when environmental conditions conspired to create some problems for abalone. But um, I think that was an interesting part of the story too, that you know there was this tradition of conservation with sports fishermen that had them trying to figure out how do we protect these animals into the future uh, so that we can enjoy this experience of hunting them. In retrospect, when we we look back, it seems like the decision to close fisheries in Southern California was late, that the commercial fishing industry really, it's it just seemed like they were in such a sense of denial, willful denial, but also, you know, you can't help but think that just greed is is a large driver when they are, you know, commodifying all this. But I was just shocked then when the biologists and and the the scientific exploration of well let's really do a count. How what is the the population out there? 9 and they're you know miles apart. They'd see one lone abalone and it was just shocking to me in really such a short period of time how these creatures could be just fished out and there was still a great sense of denial about what needed to be done. Yeah, and I, I think the big thing that my book tries to explain, which is that because we had the wrong idea about this animal, because we didn't understand the history, we thought it was a super abundant animal and that it could just reproduce uh, and keep up with our heavy fishing. Um, we didn't understand that it was vulnerable. And so, you know, I've come to think of abalone as a, as a sentinel animal because it is an animal that shows us what's at stake for all of the wild animals that we still use as foods. And, you know, it was fishing was certainly a big stressor on abalone, but it was ultimately too a whole bunch of things that piled on. And, you know, this has happened actually about 30 years ago, it happened in Southern California, when we had some big El Nino started to come. And so we had increasing environmental stressors of Turns out that warm water uh, knocks out kelp, which abalone need to eat. It have, it means that they can grow less. It means they can't make their gametes properly. And uh, so they can't reproduce, they can't grow. And so if you're fishing on top of all of that, you know, it's pretty hard. And, and not to mention there was also the heat is makes them more vulnerable to disease. And so one of the stories I write about in my book is um, an epidemic of abalone, black abalone in particular, that happened in Southern California in the 80s. And so, you know, people just didn't see this coming. And um, one of the things I think for those of us who study extinctions and how this happens, it, it's never one thing. It's always different things piling on that happen. And then something similar happened, you know, just in the past seven years, what we call the perfect storm on the North Coast, where we had still abundant abalone that people were enjoying fishing. People were coming from all over to Mendocino and Sonoma to enjoy the fishery. And then we had a disease hit the sunflower sea stars and urchin uh, sea stars up and down the coast. It turns out they are prime predators of urchins. And then when those predators were removed, we had an expansion of urchins and we had, again, warm water, El Nino's in the blob that 
decimated kelp in a short time, about 90% of the kelp in Northern California, which had been known for its rich kelp forest, was knocked out. And, and so, you know, it's things like that. When you see this through time, you can realize, oh, this is, you know, kind of a postcard for what climate change is going to be like. This is, we can't put animals that we care about under so many stressors and expect them to continue to provide for us as they have in the past. Um, So I think, you know, seeing these stories layered up is incredibly poignant. And um, it was my hope that by putting these stories together and showing how important these animals have been to us, how much people love them, and how difficult it is to, for us to pull together to figure out what to do when these uh, stressors start to pile on, you know, that it really helps us to see the straits that we're in. Yes, the North Coast fishery is something we could probably talk more about, but I think that we're rapidly running out of time. I I did want to talk a little bit about poaching because it seems like poaching has been an issue and it was a big issue on on the North Coast. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Poaching is another, uh, has been a problem with abalone in particular, and it gets again to the fact that this animal with its beautiful shell and its meat, you know, we didn't really end up talking about how the meat of this animal was, became incredibly valuable. And, you know, for a while it was abundant and everybody was eating abalone hamburgers. And I write in my book about people who were bringing, kids were bringing abalone sandwiches to school instead of peanut butter and jelly because it was so common. But as the animal became rarer, the price for the meat went way up. And um, again, getting back to, you know, I talked about how in China and Asia, there are um, cultural values for abalone that persist to this day, and they make abalone incredibly valuable and expensive still. And so um, a black market developed for uh, these animals, and they would be worth like a hundred plus dollars for each animal. And so um, there was a lot of poaching going around happening in the late 90s, where poachers would sneak in and, you know, get the animals. And people have written quite a lot about this because it sort of sounds like, um, you know, they're, they're crime stories with all sorts of fascinating facets, you know, where people are hiding the abalone in old diving tanks or moving around mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and detectives are trying to track them down. Um, but it was a component of the problem as well. And that unfortunately is very difficult to deal with. And I don't know how we get out of that because, I mean, it's kind of the the problem is that as the animal gets rarer, it becomes more expensive and more valuable. On the North Coast, there were some groups that uh, formed, you know, like the Mendocino Abalone Watch Group, where people were really just trying to keep an eye out for poachers and, you know, create a culture of people who um, value abalone and, you know, keep an eye out for that. But it's... um, if the abalone come back, it is, it's a problem. And the probably only way to address it is to just help to create more of a culture of valuing these animals for their persistence. So tell us where we're at now, the state of things in in California. This isn't just a California issue. It it really does go all the way up into uh, coastal Canada. Yeah, well, so as I mentioned, the abalone commercial fishery and 
sport fishery for abalone was closed in 1997 south of San Francisco. And then in 2017, because of the environmental stressors on in the North Coast, the fishery was closed in 2017 there. So right now, after you know thousands of years of, of people hunting and enjoying abalone shells and meat, it's not legal right now for anyone to take abalone. And we are hoping, I would say, everyone's hoping that this pause will give abalone an opportunity to recover. But it turns out, um, as I alluded to earlier, abalone really depend on kelp. And there was a big die-off of kelp in Northern California and over the past several years. As we have periods with warmer water, more El Nino's blobs from the north, it's going to make it harder for kelp to persist. Several years ago, people were worried about how are we even going to get kelp, bull kelp to come back because it's an annual plant. And when it dies off, um, you know, we're still learning about how kelps persist. There have been efforts to figure that out. Some um, of the dive groups in Northern California have organized to try to remove urchins in specific coves, trying to kind of create what I think of as oases for kelp and abalone, kind of like little oases for biodiversity. But there are literally at this point, you know, millions of urchins out there. And so you kind of can't kill your way, kill urchins, which also play a role in ecosystems uh, to get out of it. Another approach that people are taking is trying to restore those sea stars, those sunflower sea stars, which are voracious predators. And so that's a project in the works, but it's not, not happening quite yet. And it's important to keep in mind, though, that it's the ocean temperatures, ocean, ocean conditions that are really kind of the overdriving force in, in kelp uh, persistence because it needs cold, uh, nutrient-rich water to grow. Last year, I heard that it sounds like some kelp areas started to rebound and people were really thrilled about that. So hopefully that is a hopeful sign, but those are some things happening in Northern California. For the most uh, endangered species of abalone, um, that's the white abalone, which is listed as an endangered species in 2001. It was the first mollusk listed as an endangered species, the first invertebrate. Uh, there are actually pretty exciting efforts to try to bring that animal back. And part of that effort happens in Northern California at the Bodega Marine Lab. Basically, that abalone, um, the numbers were so few, the animals uh, were so few and far apart that they had to start a captive breeding program, bringing some abalone in and trying to raise them and raise them in enough numbers uh, to restore them to their former habitat. And you'd think, uh, that it might be an easy thing to do uh, to raise abalone because, of course, they have been raised in some cases. We haven't really talked about mariculture much. Um, they have been raised um, in some cases in tanks on land. But it turns out that it's incredibly complicated to raise animals that are competent to go back into the ocean environment and survive. And so that's been a project that's taken many years to kind of get 
everything lined up. And in 2019, for the very first time, some of these animals were put back out to the ecosystem in Southern California. Um, and so that's an ongoing project that's very exciting. And it's hoped that whatever is learned in that project can be used to help with some of the other restorations, you know, if we need to restore other abalone as we move forward. Really, we need to be thinking about these ecosystems as whole places. I mean, one of the other stories I tell in my book is the history of kelp forest ecology and how people came to understand these undersea ecosystems that are so complex. We're still learning about them and every animal and every plant in them plays a role. And so, um, you know, I think our tendency is to think about individual species, but increasingly we have to think about these systems moving forward. Um, but there's a lot of positive and exciting uh, news on that front, I think, as well. It's really such a delicate balance, and we don't always understand that. And it's been illustrated with abalone time and again, just what a delicate balance it is. And in your book, you talk about the many people who have devoted their life and careers to exploring this and to trying to understand that ecology and the reproduction of these of these animals. And they become heroes in, in, in your book. Anne Velices, thank you. I think this is an important work. And for those of us who live in California, I think it's important to understand um, maybe why we're not seeing shells the way we used to, or starfish the way we used to, and we don't, it becomes invisible almost to us. So I, I appreciate that you've brought this to us. And I thank you for talking to us today about it. Thanks so much, Susie, for your interest. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. My conversation with Anne Velices. Her book is Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. We were kibitzing a bit before ending our Zoom call, and I think I need to share part of that as a coda to our conversation. I loved the book, and I love it when I encounter a book like this that is really rich in how you, you know, that you cover the science of it and the culture and deep culture on it. And so I just can't imagine what your process is. And it sounds like you have a lot of fun doing research at, and, and engaging with all these different people. Yeah, I really, I really do. I, I have a blast doing the research. And then the hard part, as you alluded to, is figuring out then how do you pull it all together? And that's, uh, that's the challenge. But uh, I often felt too that in writing this book, I was really trying to almost create a gift to help people understand what happened because I found so many people didn't really understand the loss of abalone and having that sense of, okay, I need to create something that's a piece that people can just read the whole thing and get the whole big picture um, at once uh, was something I think that helped keep me inspired to keep writing and keep working on it. Cause it did take me actually nearly a decade to pull it together. And part of that is just because it was, it was a challenging story to pull together with all of the different pieces. I'll say, and, and really, I wondered if you had ever worked in 
government or research yourself because the way you seemed to describe government processes and collaborations between entities just um, you seem to, to have an inside knowledge or at least the ability to distill the information and present it in a good way but have you did have you worked in government before? no I have not and um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think the reason that I had to go down those paths is that um to track the story of what actually happened with abalone, I had to go and really learn those types of things. You know, I mean, it's one thing to just ask people, well, what happened or ask fishermen what happened? And you can kind of get general vague type of answers, but to really understand what happened, I had to go and track down the specifics. And that is what led me down those paths of, of really understanding more deeply the processes that do govern how our fish and wildlife are managed. You know, it's kind of arcane and yet it, it's, that's, that's where it happens. And, you know, so I ended up getting this sense that boy, everybody in California would really care about abalone and would want abalone to persist into the future. But here often these rooms are just a few people who are self-interested making the decisions, you know, or having overdue undue influence over the decisions and was kind of aware of that contrast was, um, you know, something I wanted to reveal and show um, because it felt to me always like, wait, there need to be more people in this room. There need to be more people who know what's going on, you know? So I appreciated when you would make uh, um, observations like, okay, it's 10 years later and everybody who was on the commission then wasn't on it now. And it's almost like this whole, educational process had to be ongoing. And um, yeah, I thought it was fabulous. So great. And thank you again so much, Susie, for taking the time to read my book and talk to me and um, help me get the word out about it. Um, I think, as I said, it is something that more people I hope will be interested to learn about. So I really appreciate also just, you know, you're working on helping to keep the culture of books alive, <laughs> which I think is so important too. <laughs> One other little note, you know, when I, since I've written, well, this is my third book. It just seems like every, and they take a long time to write in between this last one and this one, when I went back and was looking at bookstores where I'd spoken in the past and such, you know, I realized so many of them had closed or even reviewing media was less. And it just, you know, it's interesting to see that through time. So I really value and appreciate people like you who are, you know, helping keep the book culture alive. Anne Velisis came to us from her home along the Pacific coast in Southern Oregon. She'll be visiting Northern California soon, so catch her if you can when she is speaking in the area. Her book is Abalone, The Remarkable History and Uncertain Future of California's Iconic Shellfish. I thank Anne, and I thank you for listening, along with James Morey and Mark Prell for production assistance. You can stream us online and subscribe to our podcast at krcb.org. Follow the radio podcast links. We are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB Northern California Public Media. I am Suzanne Lang, and this is A Novel Idea.